so that it can be a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said last week, today I am going to preach through the whole Bible in one sermon. And it's not even going to be that much longer than a normal sermon, so don't worry. And uh, this may be the most important sermon that I have ever preached. Now, I want to be clear. I didn't say it was going to be the best sermon that I ever preached. I just want expectations to be set right. But maybe the most important, because the Bible isn't just any old book. It is a personalized letter written not just to the whole world, but to you from your Father who loves you. And through it, Jesus gives us victory over sin, fear, loneliness, and he gives us power, courage, and joy. The Bible can transform your life in amazing ways. But the Bible can also feel very foreign. All those strange names, places, customs can make it really hard to apply the Bible to our everyday life. As a single friend of mine says, the Bible will tell you how to build an ark out of gopher wood and how to bring down a city with nothing but trumpets, but not one word on how to ask a woman out on a date. <laughs> what good is it? But I think that's because we don't really know how to read it. That's why for this sermons this year, we're going to do what we always do, three to six week short sermon series that are focused on everyday life, but we'll do them chronologically through Scripture. So that between now and the end of June, you will have heard the whole Bible, sort of, skipping a few bits. And I promise this isn't going to be an act, dry academic march through Scripture. We will apply the Bible to your everyday life. And today I want to do something very different than what I normally do. No three-point sermon today, nothing like that. I am simply going to tell you the whole story of the Bible. Because even if you know it very well, once you hear it as a whole story, beginning, middle, and end, it has a whole lot more power. And I just want to let you know up front, I'm going to spend a little bit more time at the beginning of the Bible than at the end. So if we're a few minutes into the sermon and we're still in Genesis, don't panic. Right? You're going to get home on time. <laughs> and if every once in a while you could just nod to let me know that you're with me, I'd appreciate that. Good job. I want to start by showing a clip from a movie called Blood Diamond. And this is an idea I stole from Greg Milliken. Blood Diamond is a movie about the illegal diamond trade in Sierra Leone, Africa, where the rebel army would trade diamonds in exchange for arms. They would also, however, kidnap kids as young as seven or eight, brainwash them, make them part of the army, and force them to do terrible things like kill people. The movie tells the story of a father whose son is captured by the rebel army and brainwashed. And the father spends the rest of the movie trying to get his son back. And he's assisted by Leonardo DiCaprio, who says that in exchange for a rare diamond that the father has found, he will help him find his son. And the scene I'm going to show you is where the father and the son are finally reunited. Go ahead and roll the clip. It had better be there, huh? Yes, yes. Yeah. You got it. Have you got it, huh? Yes, got it. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Solomon. Dear. What are you doing? Dear. Nyangbe, Nyangbe, what are you doing? Bela Diavanti of the Proud Mende tribe. 
You are a good boy who loves soccer and school. Your mother loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister yonder. And the new baby. The cows wait for you. And Babu. The wild dog who wants no one but you. Hmm? I know they made you do bad things. But you're not a bad boy. I am your father, who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. So you've got a story where a son is captured by the enemy, brainwashed to do terrible things. The father sets out to pursue that son up to and including paying a ransom for his son's life and even facing death at the hands of the very son he came to save. Does that story sound familiar to you? That clip is the Bible in two minutes. A father who will stop at nothing to be reunited with his sons and his daughters. And when the father finds us, he does not say, you bad son, you bad daughter. He calls us by name. And he reminds us who we really are before the enemy brainwashed us. And he says, I love you and I have come to take you home. The whole Bible can be summed up in four simple words. God never gives up. God never gives up, not on you and not on me. It starts at the very beginning when out of love God creates heaven and earth and the pinnacle of his creation is humanity. And for their own good, God puts limits around what they can do. He says you can eat of any tree in the garden, but one will hurt you, so don't eat it. But the enemy, Satan, brainwashed them, told them that the Father was out to keep them from reaching their full potential, so they ate it. And they got what they wanted, the knowledge of good and evil, good lost and evil gained. And as soon as Adam and Eve ate the apple, they started to do something very familiar. They started to bicker and argue with each other. And husbands and wives have been bickering and arguing ever since. Blame it on Adam and Eve. I have a friend who's working on being a better listener as a husband, and he says, I've learned one thing. What is it now does not count as compassionate listening. <laughs> Adam's fault. Then God asks Adam and Eve what happened. And in the mother of all cop-outs, Adam says, the woman that you gave me, I told you it wasn't a good idea to make one of them, God, but you didn't listen. She gave it to me and, well, I sort of ate it. Adam takes his punishment like a man. He blames it on his wife. Showing that we humans just cannot fess up when we do wrong. Then they run away from God and hide in the garden. And we have been rebelling, running, and hiding from our Father ever since. But God never gives up. He calls them by name, and he makes them close to protect them, showing that even in their moment of rebellion, God still loves them and cares for them. 
And he promises that from them will come one man who will make everything right again. Adam and Eve go on to have two kids of their own who turned out to be even more rebellious than they were. One of their sons, Cain, kills his brother Abel, and it only gets worse from there. Their descendants murder each other, kill their own children in pagan rituals, oppress others, eventually try to become God by building a tower all the way to heaven. But God never gives up. So he moves to phase two of his rescue plan. He will give his message that he is our father who loves us to one man and his family living in a land called Ur, which is now today Iraq. And that man's name was Abraham. And his job and the job of his descendants, who later became the nation of Israel, was simple. God tells them they exist for one reason, to bless the whole world and spread the news of God's redeeming love to everyone. So God narrows the scope of his salvation plan to a few thousand square miles in Southwest Asia. Now, why did God do it this way? Why just one family, one nation? Why? One word, relationship. God himself is a relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So rather than write his message in the sky, God chose to work relationally through people. God also picked the time and the place that made the most sense. Abraham lived in the Fertile Crescent, which is where civilization developed. And most importantly for God's purposes, writing, so that his message could be recorded. Israel is also located at the intersection of trade routes between three continents, Europe, Asia, Africa, where the news about God could spread most easily. It was a very strategic choice. And Abraham is the first human to realize that there's only one God and that that God is love, which was very different than the pagan cultures of the time, where there were multiple gods and they were always very, very mad at you, very angry gods, and you always had to do a lot of sacrifices to keep them from zapping you. So Abraham follows God from his hometown in Ur all the way to Israel. And God promises Abraham that we, he will have a son, even though Abraham is 100 at the time and his wife is 90 which Abraham took as good news, though God knows why, at that age, right? I mean, seriously, he'd be the only person in Safeway with both the pens and pampers in the shopping cart. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> I laughed at my own joke. That's tacky. And then in a solemn ceremony... God makes this promise, and he has Abraham cut an animal in half because that's the way you made a covenant in those days, a promise, was the two people making the agreement would then join hands and walk between the two halves of the dead animal together and then stop in the middle. And the idea was, what they were really saying is, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'm going to make you like this dead animal. A little different than signing a contract today. But in Genesis 15, God does a surprising thing. God walks between the pieces alone, without Abraham, showing that this covenant will be kept not by human faithfulness, because we don't have any, but by God's faithfulness, because God never gives up. And because he doesn't, Abraham gets his son, Isaac. And Isaac has Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And from those 12 sons comes the nation of Israel, divided up into 12 tribes named after those sons. Now, they're not the best people, they fight with each other. They commit incest, rape, attempted fratricide, murder. They're enmeshed, codependent, passive-aggressive, and borderline psychotic. And these are the people God chooses for his special mission. As I've said before, one thing's for sure. You don't want God as your HR guy. He hires all the wrong people. 
They aren't the best people, but they're God's people. And that's what gives them dignity. Well, the family dysfunction reaches a climax when Jacob's sons try to kill their younger brother Joseph, but settle instead to sell him into slavery in Egypt. But God brings good out of it. Joseph makes a good impression on Pharaoh and gets promoted to prime minister of Egypt. Then when a famine strikes the entire Fertile Crescent, Joseph guides Egypt through unscathed. Meanwhile, his brothers go to Egypt to get some food because they're starving. They're reconciled with Joseph, and they all move to Egypt where they're well cared for, proving that no matter what happens, God can bring good out of evil. What problems are you facing in your life right now? It can't possibly be worse than having your siblings try to kill you and then sell you into slavery. And if God can bring good out of that, well, then surely he can bring good out of whatever it is you're facing. Because God never gives up. Well, generations come and go, they multiply, and a new king who does not know Joseph arises in Egypt. And he's afraid of the Israelites' growing numbers, so he makes them slaves. And then for approximately 400 years, God seems silent. No prophet, no leaders, as his special people languish in slavery. But he hadn't given up, because he never does. Throughout those 400 years, he still had individual relationships with all of those people, helping them, supporting them, giving them comfort. And then one day, when Pharaoh gave an order to throw all male Jewish babies into the Nile River, a Jewish mother puts her son in a basket and floats him down the river. Pharaoh's daughter then rescues him and calls him Moses. Moses grows up, murders an Egyptian who's beating a fellow Jew, and flees to the desert where he runs into God in the form of a burning bush who tells him to go back to Egypt and deliver his people from slavery. Moses then spends two and a half chapters giving excuses for why he can't do it. And they won't ever do that. Right? They won't listen to me. I'm not a good speaker. On and on. God answers each objection very patiently. And finally Moses says, oh Lord, just send someone else. At which point the Bible says, and then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Ooh, not a good thing. Why was God mad? Because he knew Moses. And he loved him. And he knew that in spite of Moses' fears, the longing of his heart was to free his people. That's why he killed the Egyptian. What is God asking you to do that you don't want to do? Give up some behavior? Serve in some way? Forgive someone? Do you trust that God knows the longing of your heart better than you do? And that he is saying to you, trust me on this. I'm trying to give you joy. So Moses goes. Pharaoh is reluctant to set his workforce free, but ten plagues convince him otherwise. But just as they're leaving, Pharaoh changes his mind, pursues them to the Red Sea with his army, and it looks like it's over for God's special people. But God never gives up. And then in the mother of all cliffhangers, with Israel up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army charging hard on, God does a kind of cosmic sneeze, and the waters part, and Israel goes through on dry ground, and Pharaoh's army is drowned, proving one thing conclusively, God loves a drama. You know what the problem with that is, though? I don't, especially when I'm the lead actor in that drama. But what a cool day. What an adventure for Moses, right? I mean, you imagine him going home to Mrs. Moses, and she says, how was your day? And he says, oh, you know, got chased by Pharaoh's army, divided the Red Sea, delivered God's people. And she would have said, that's nice, dear. Did you pick up some milk on the way home? <laughs> God wanted to give Moses a really cool day. But then, just three days later, just three days later, the Israelites begin to whine. 
Why? Because they don't have any water to drink. Okay, they just saw God divide an ocean in two, right? He has proven himself capable in the medium of water. (laughs) You would have thought that would have held them for a week. But now they just start to whine and complain, showing that we are what-have-you-done-for-me-lately-God kind of people, aren't we? What problems do you face in life? If God has been faithful in the past, won't he be faithful now? Because God never gives up. So he sends them water and he sends them food called manna, which appears every morning. But they still complain. Well, back in Egypt, we had garlic and onions. Okay, you were slaves, but yeah, you had garlic. Good, good, good for you, right? So God says, oy vey, which is a theological word. <laughs> These people are driving me crazy. They will never be able to conquer the promised land with this kind of slave mentality. So he makes them wander in the desert for 40 years until all of the whiners die. (laughs) He didn't kill them. They just, you know, went the way of all the world. But he hasn't given up. As they wander, he is still loving them. He is still working with them. They develop a legal system, an army, a government, things slaves don't need, but they're going to have to have if they're going to be a nation state. Do you feel like you are wandering in a desert? And you don't know where God is taking you? As you wander, God is giving you things, developing things in you that you're going to need for your promised future. And of all the things they get in the desert, the most important is God gives them his law. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all the laws in the book of Leviticus. And the law was meant not to constrain us, but to help us live fulfilling lives and avoid what's going to hurt us. The law is also a description of the purity and the holiness of God. There are laws about which foods are clean and unclean. Even laws about how to get rid of yeast and mildew. Very helpful, that law. And the purpose is to show that God is holy. He's like a silicon chip. Even the tiniest imperfection mars his holiness. So in order for him to remain uncompromised, we need to be holy too if we're going to relate to him. But that's impossible. And that's the point of the law. We can't keep it. God is pure. We're not. Something needs to be done to atone for that difference. So God sets up up a temporary remedy. Every year, the high priest would take a lamb without blemish, symbolically place all the sins of Israel on the lamb, and then sacrifice it, symbolically paying for Israel's sins. Well, after 40 years of preparation, God finally leads them into the promised land, where they live for 300 years, ruled by local charismatic leaders called judges that God raises up. Then at the end of those 300 years, they ask for a king, which hurts God, Because he was their king. So God says, "Mm, king, not a good idea. A king will force you to pay taxes. He'll start wars. Did I mention taxes? Do you really want a king? But they said, yes, give us a king. We want to be like all the other nations. Showing again that we do not always know what is best for us. You know, God gives us pretty clear instructions in life. Pretty simple. It says, just do two things. Make me look good by how you live and let me run your life. That's what God says to us. Very simple, right? Not the other way around. When it comes to life, we need to remember this. We're in sales, not management. (laughs) So God says, well, if the only way to show you that this is a bad idea is to give you what you want, have a king. Sometimes God's punishment is just letting us have what we want. Well, the first king, Saul, started out good, but went bad, as kings are wont to do. You know, kings, fish, company, throw them out after three days. 
But the second king, David, was the greatest of all. He was passionate about God. In fact, one time he got so excited about God, he took off all of his clothes and danced naked as an act of worship. Awkward. (laughs) His wife saw that and said, stop it, you're embarrassing me. That's one of the verses I use to prove that the Bible is historically accurate. Does a wife saying that to her husband sound historically accurate to you? David was passionate about God, but he was also very sinful. He commits adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, has her husband murdered to cover it up. And that sets off a chain of events that rips David's family and eventually the nation in two. And David dies a broken man. Then his son Solomon succeeds him. The Bible says that God offered Solomon wisdom, but it's not really clear that Solomon actually ever took that gift because he ends up with over 700 wives. That doesn't sound wise to me. Like, what made him think that was going to work out? Nobody needs that many spouses. One will do you. And his wives caused all kinds of problems for the nation because they were foreigners who introduced their pagan gods. Then after Solomon dies, the kingdom is split in two in 930 B.C. with the ten northern states forming the kingdom called Israel and the two southern states forming the kingdom called Judah. And for centuries, it is a nation divided. Kings come and go in both kingdoms over the next few centuries. Some of them are good and worship God. Most of them are not and worship pagan gods and do horrible things like child sacrifice. But God never gives up. So he sent prophet after prophet to call the two kingdoms to repentance. Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, but nobody listened. Eventually God decides the only way he can get their attention is if something drastic happens. So he allows Assyria to destroy the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. For a while, Judah, the southern kingdom, looks at that and goes, ooh, that didn't look good. And they get their act together. But then they also eventually wander away from God. And so in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom falls to the Babylonians. And the Jews are taken into exile for 70 years in Babylon. After that, Babylon falls to the Persians, and the Jews return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But they come back different. Never again do they worship pagan gods. Somehow the experience of exile purged Israel of its idolatry. Showing that sometimes when bad things happen to us, in the end it's helpful because the experience purifies us. Rids us of some fear or addiction or wound that's hindering us. Well, eventually the Greeks invade and later the Romans while the Jews wait for a Messiah to deliver them from political oppression. And then for another 400 years between the Old and New Testament, God again seems silent. No more prophets. But all the while, he's still working with individuals, comforting them, giving them strength. Meanwhile, Socrates and Aristotle are writing. Alexander the Great conquers the world, then Rome. And still no prophet in Israel emerges. The Old Testament ends in defeat. Political defeat, to be sure, but spiritual as well. Nearly 2,000 years have passed since Abraham, and God's special people have been unable to keep his laws, unable to truly love him. The Old Testament hammers home the point again and again that we, we humans cannot, on our own, make ourselves right with a holy God. On our own, we are doomed to run away from the Father who loves us because we have been brainwashed by the enemy. But God never gives up. So at the height of Rome's power, 
in a nowhere village called Bethlehem, a baby is born to a poor, unwed, homeless teenage girl. And it's the same story we saw with Moses. An evil king on the rampage, 400 years of seeming silence, and at first all God does is send a baby. Because you see, sometimes when God begins his rescue of our lives, it starts small and we don't notice it at first. But the baby grows to be Jesus, and he teaches, preaches, does miracles. And Jesus is God himself coming in human form. You see, there has been a tornado of love building in the Father. And all throughout the Old Testament, God sent his messengers, the prophets, to call us back. But finally, God couldn't take it anymore, so he comes himself in the person of Jesus to rescue us. Well, the religious leaders worry that he's a blasphemer, and the Romans worry that he'll start a revolution, so together they crucify Jesus. And while on the cross, God pours out his punishment on all sin everywhere. Jesus, the ultimate Lamb of God, sacrificed to pay for your sins and mine. And so on a Friday afternoon, Jesus dies at the hands of the very people he came to rescue. But God never gives up. So three days later, Jesus rises from the dead on Easter Sunday, showing that there is now nothing that we need to fear. Because you see, the cross is more than just Jesus paying for our sins. The cross is also the devil throwing his best punch. His special weapons, suffering, shame, failure, death. At the cross, the devil brought his best sauce, but Jesus absorbed the worst this world can deliver, and he rose three days later. What suffering do you endure? God will bring new life. What shame do you bear? God will bring new life. What deaths do you mourn? God will bring new life. What failures do you fear? God will bring new life. There is nothing, no one, no thing that can defeat you. Jesus showed that the worst the devil has to offer is not enough to defeat God's purposes in your life. Because of Jesus, whatever you face, it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming because God never gives up. There you go. Well, after he was raised from the dead, Jesus stuck around for 40 days, then ascended into heaven. After that, he sent his Holy Spirit to live inside each one of us, the Spirit of God himself, giving us power and intimate connection with the living God so that we can actually hear him speak to us. About the same time, God got a hold of a zealot named Saul who killed Christians for sport, knocked him off his horse, changed his name to Paul, and sent him around the world to talk about Jesus. And the world has never been the same since. Within 30 years of Jesus' death, there were cells of Christians all over the empire. Within 200 years, it was the world's largest religion. And it didn't spread in those years through the sword or politics. It spread because those first Christians would be thrown to the lions for their faith and sing for joy in spite of it. It spread because they would care for plague victims at the risk of their own lives when nobody else would do it. It spread because they gave dignity to women and put different ethnic groups together in one community. And because Christians were so different, so brave, so alive, so bold, folks just wanted to know Jesus. And so it just spread like wildfire. Well, we finally arrive at the end of the Bible, where a disciple named John has been exiled to the island of Patmos for following Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, he sees a vision of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, triumphing over evil, making all things new. Making the world as it was always intended to be. And we, his people, transformed into who we were created to be. Not heaven, not heaven with clouds and harps and all that stuff. No, 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 no. This earth without all the junk. <clears throat> where God will wipe every tear from our eye. 
and there will be no more mourning and no more pain. And he will be our father, and we will be his sons and daughters again. It all began in a garden in the Fertile Crescent, and it ends with the whole world transformed. This grand story of our father who never gives up and who passionately pursues a creation that is frantically running away from him. It is epic with a capital E. I mean, it is gone with the wind, Titanic, Lord of the Rings, all wrapped into one. And it's all the better because it's true. And as we go through this year, I'm, year, I'm going to give you all kinds of reasons to know that this thing really did happen in history. But even better still, the Father did all of this for you. It is all for you. All 783,137 words of it about a God who passionately loves you and never gives up on you. <clears throat> when my wife and I were dating, she used to write me all these letters all the time. And I would just love getting them. I'd rip them open. I'd read them over and over again because I just loved hearing how much she loved me. I mean, what can I say? She was crazy about me. <clears throat> the Bible is very similar. It is a letter written to you by your father who loves you believes in you, and wants to be with you. And his only question is this. Will you let me in? In your life in general, by turning it over to him, but also daily. In the little ways we run away from him, let the enemy brainwash us. In those places where you invite him in again and again and say, Father, I'm yours. Lead me. You see, it's just like the movie clip I showed you. Through Jesus, the Father is seeking you. And hear what your heavenly Father says to you. He calls you by name and reminds you of who you really are before the enemy brainwashed you. And he says, look at me. Why are you running? I have been looking for you all your life. And I know. I know that the enemy has convinced you to do terrible things. But you are not a bad son. You are not a bad daughter. You are mine. And I am your father who loves you. And I have come to find you. And you will come home and live with me. And you will be my daughter. You will be my son again. Because you see, God never gives up. Not on me and not on you. I've heard it said that a man would climb a
Yeah.